since I've been awake since uh, 5.30 and I've been waking up intermittently, I got to say I don't have much of an open other than, oh, well, at 5.30 this morning uh, when I took Chibi out, <laughs> I looked at the sky and to the east, southeast, uh, there was an insane bright star. And I was like, oh, this is why Putin's invading because all of the governments know an asteroid is about to hit us. <laughs> Was it just Venus, Eric? <laughs> it apparently is just Venus, yes. <laughs> it's, that's where it always is. You, you know, you, it's tough to miss. It's why they call it the morning star. I think we've even talked about this uh, on a podcast. <laughs> no, see, I thought, okay. I thought they were just calling it that because it, the god... Ishtar was all, but okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I mean, it was kind of cool because uh, I come back and, you know, before telling my goodbyes to my beloved wife, mm-hmm. um, I check uh, the internet just to make sure, and uh, it auto completes pretty early on. I was like, bright star at, and it says five a.m. in the east. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> this is no, you know, Bill Clinton, Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> you know, that doesn't autocomplete, but. Yeah, um, it's, it's you, you only have one of two guesses to get right when it's that situation. It's either the planet Venus or uh-huh. it's Juliet from Romeo and Juliet. Those are the only two possible options when you see <laughs> a bright star in the east and you're not sure how it's just so beautiful. You don't know what it is. Look at that. Applause for Look at you. that. <laughs> Astronomy, cosmology, and Shakespearean literature all in one all in one quote. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything. Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the Talking to you about space way more has gotten me into um, at least looking at the stars. So I thank you for that. But um, every every night I take the dogs out, I've been watching. It's around the same time, like between 9 to 10 p.m. I've been looking up to like find where Orion is, Mm -hmm. like watching that kind of going across the sky. So I can see how, you know ancient people figured out the stars it's not that complicated once you if you got nothing else to We're, do we, we have this these great pattern recognizing machines inside of our heads mm-hmm. and uh look all these fixed points of light in the sky make a lot of the same pattern <laughs> they don't go anywhere <laughs> i mean it would be one thing if orion's belt was just constantly like swirling and doing real curly cues and you didn't know where where to locate it but that's it's all right there all the time <laughs> it's yeah. just right right in alignment <laughs> and then uh 
whenever I came back though, this is this is the level that I'm at between liking looking at at stars and stuff and and still being, you know, um I don't know, thinking it's SG. <laughs> Not SG. But I uh I came back and I looked up the Venus thing and then it showed me a map and it's like, "Oh yeah, and Mars is right here and then, you know, like Jupiter's kind of here." So I was like, "Oh, I could have seen that if I knew." I'm not going back out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and depending on the time, I mean, they might have been just underneath the horizon on the other side of the planet. So yeah, you wouldn't yeah. have really been able to see them anyway. But yeah. Yeah. And then I was I was also like, okay, well, if this is an asteroid, the Earth rotates, so maybe it's going to rotate and it's not going to land directly on me. And then I remembered, <laughs> no, wait, we're going to rotate directly under its path. So maybe yeah. this will just be a glance. Hur- hurry up, blow. hurry up while I'm on the other side. Hit hit Mongolia, yeah, yeah. Hit, hit Siberia, hit one of those. <laughs> don't don't just... let it rotate back around. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to re- recall very quickly, like you describing the asteroid from the dinosaur's point of view. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, well, I think this means it's over for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have enough time to wonder, I think you're probably okay. <laughs> right. But I mean, there there is a quite relevant corollary to that. With uh, did you see um on YouTube? There's a great like forty minute long uh thing done um by a compilation of all the Australian news networks from 1974 from July 1974 covering like the f- four days of when Skylab is about to crash back in back into earth and them all being like America keeps telling us it's not going to hit Australia but we get kind of concerned because it passes over the the major populated centers of Australia every day multiple times I don't know <laughs> yeah it uh I did not see that video um because I had to quit researching because there is so much that went on during this entire it's barely a year <laughs> yeah I think it was occupied for what like a total of no, was it? I can't remember. But it was it was occupied for a total of like under a hundred fifty days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I a, an ex, a space laboratory experiment that was supposed to have a shelf life of ten years didn't even make it one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, I guess you know, I don't know. Um, there's so much stuff that went into it that uh, I figured, um. The best place to start uh, was why? Why or how did you even hear about this? Because I I didn't know this existed ever. So like, until this, you told me about it, this is uh like everyone knows about 1960s NASA because it's all about right. the moon, right, and Apollo and the, the right stuff and all that stuff, and everyone knows about like the 80s and 90s space shuttle NASA. And everybody is aware of like the 2000s when we, we've been alive. It's all been like the International Space Station, NASA, and rovers to Mars and all that type of stuff. Like no one remembers the 70s. <laughs> in general, yeah. but also in regards to NASA. It's, it's, like, uh, it, it's, it's like it just got, gets forgotten to be covered. I did take an astronomy course in high school. When I went to public high school, I had in private school, I had already like done my science requirements for graduation. So by the time I got to public high school, I didn't need to take any more science courses in order to graduate. 
but I had a lot of open periods and they won't just let you just not have classes in public high school. It's not like college where you can just be like, oh, I'll just have a bunch of free periods. Um, So I took astronomy and uh, that's where I learned about Skylab. It was in that class, Mrs. Post's astronomy class. She was awesome. She was an awesome astronomy teacher. Like, that's that's probably one of the places where I really started to get, like, real hands-on with my understanding of space. We did stuff about uh, what would cause, like, certain types of formations on Mars. So we had to do experiments where we had, like, a frozen layer underneath sandy soils to see what kind of geo- uh, geological formations that would cause. It was. We just did a lot of cool stuff in that class. Learned a lot about space and the solar hmm. system. Yeah, that sounds nice. Was it at your high school? Yeah, yeah, it was at the high school. And I, I guess it was like, it was mostly either like some, half the class was like AP kids, and then the other half of the class was kind of like the burnout kids. So I don't know if it's like the m- mainstream high school kids couldn't take the class because they were in physics or chemistry or whatever um but the kids who did like the super easy high school program where they did like math models and the the most rudimentary level classes they got into astronomy and then the kids Mm. who had like the ap classes who had already done all the earlier science earlier in their career got to do astronomy so it was kind of a weird mix uh yeah that sounds interesting I'm trying to remember like the extracurriculars at my high school. We had a weird thing though. Um, I think all of the Denton high schools and then uh, some other, can't remember, maybe Lake Dallas something, but they built this off-campus like location. It was called the like advanced technology complex, I think. Mm-hmm. And they taught they had like culinary classes uh, it was kind of like doing like trade school stuff which yeah. which is an awesome idea we had that at turner too but it was not for the astronomy part but i don't think because i i took like a, a graphic design class there um and that's where like i really learned photoshop and uh they had like criminal justice okay they did have criminal justice at my high school like an intro to it so my mom taught that, um, which is fantastic. Cool. To, uh, I didn't know she taught at your high school. Uh, it was ho- horrible. While um, you were there? Yeah, for the last two years I was there, and then for the entire time my sister went there. Because um, <laughs> my sister's just four years younger than me, so it was like... Uh, just these before. things we find out that we have in common. <laughs> like my parents taught at my school in like <laughs> eighth grade, ninth grade, and tenth grade. My dad taught philosophy and history and geometry. And my mom taught theater and choir. <laughs> and the whole, so I was just like, they were there all the time. Like <laughs> I was never not with them. <laughs> and before I think- that I was homeschooled. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing about it though that was weird is um i don't know if they had like if criminal justice was the did you have it in your high school do you know we like had that? um it was part of our if we did ap government um or because okay. then you would do like the full-on like mock trial and you got to go to the courthouse and do all that stuff 
So yeah, that's the advanced version of it. Um, by the time that I was in high school, the intro to criminal justice was like the burnout kid class. Okay. So uh, the only good thing about it is since she was remarried, we had different last names. But me being on the football team, the football you know team has a lot of the burnouts <laughs> like so i'm i'm mixing and mingling and just holding my breath like waiting for them to discover <laughs> that that was my mom but they you know uh she's somebody who um uh leeches on to people that have problems so uh sh- she made them all feel good and then <laughs> yeah, she never so. she never called you son in the classroom or outed you in the middle <laughs> well, of school well i i never took the class oh okay <laughs> Yeah, she definitely would have. Um, but yeah, it was it it became very strange. I don't I think she probably should have gotten fired at one point for like I don't think you can invite students over to your house because they're having a hard home life. Like dude. Uh, <laughs> they uh I might have told this story before, but the I had different teachers invite me over to their house when I was in high school. <laughs> and not didn't you have like a not a because I had a situation <laughs> yeah like my AP art teacher invited me over to her house after she had like told me after one class all about the divorce that she had just gone through with her husband and she invited me to come over to her house to do private study and I was like I don't know still <laughs> 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 And she were, she also told me a story about how uh, she's like, oh, yeah, ever since, you know, me and my husband split up, I just forget to lock my doors all the time. What kind of, you don't <laughs> like, say that? What, you want me to, like, come over to your house in the middle of the night and just come inside? The, I don't understand what you're trying, what hints are you dropping here, lady? I don't know. <laughs> I guess she had been out of the game for quite a while. <laughs> it was really uncomfortable to the point where I transferred out of the class halfway through the year into AP psychology halfway into that that class (laughs) and I just dropped right in and I was like I don't care if I if I'm gonna bomb this because I missed the first half of it but better here than there (laughs) halfway through young yeah (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) sounds good just Uh, partner me up with somebody and I'll do a my my psychology midterm uh fucking project (laughs) Jeez, man. Well, uh, how much in the class did uh, you talk about uh, Werner von Braun? Um, in our astronomy class, we did quite a bit, just because uh, that was also like uh, there. Were, we did when we did the rockets, because um, we all like had a big rocket uh, science oh, experiment. Yeah, sure. We all to build rockets and stuff. So when we were doing the rocket stuff, we talked about Werner, not necessarily like all of the Nazi connections and everything, but more about, oh, you know, this is how these ideas came into the NASA rocket space program type of thing. The, the, uh, the clean version. (laughs) Right. Well, um, of course, um, very famous Nazi, uh, had, you know, slave labor building his rockets. And he said that he was disgusted by, the situation uh but there are reports of him just watching people being hung by chains um, right right in the factory so you know little column a little column b yeah it's it's one of those things where um especially in my in more modern times where 
we don't have these whitewashed versions of of the space program and now we're much more aware of how much Nazi proliferation happened after the war and it wasn't just oh everybody got strung up at Nuremberg and it was all done with <laughs> right <laughs> between the United States and England and France and Russia all like grabbing their own scientists and <laughs> and uh, and military minds and everybody that they could and absorbing them into their own uh, into their own systems and structures um, right so I I think that's that's certainly what uh, what we should talk about, but I also often wonder, like, under the under that regime, when you're in like the late 30s and 40s during Nazism, like how much if of your participation is compelled, and how much of it is that you're just gung ho about it, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's you know. Um... Not a situation I would want to find myself in, but, you know, I don't think I'd be working my way up. But that's that's really the main thing that I'm wondering is. So he was this, you know. Um, rocket guy. But as as I texted you and Justin yesterday, like what was his insight that the U.S. was like, we've got to keep this guy because like he he needed to be like seriously interrogated to even tell where his blueprints for like the rockets were mm -hmm, hidden. Mm -hmm. Um, so he obviously didn't just say, okay, us like, here you go. I would rather help you guys. Cause he was, uh, he definitely didn't want to go to the Soviets cause the Soviets were going to kill him like, yeah. or, or worse. Um, UK wasn't happy about the V2 rockets either. Yeah. Um, and the UK did interrogate him before the US because they knew the US was not going to share any information with them. Um, but like it, it sort of informs today's conflict as well because like the not that Russia's anything resembling communism, but it is still like the Russians hate nazis even though they have a lot of nazis but they hate the they hate germans really is what the right what the right right Every, they all they all remember they all remember uh the the blockade and the starvation of their people over two years and right they, they still remember all those things from the war so it's and i think in like uh brawny's own description of things like he he said he wanted to go to like a a nation that was led by not by laws but by christianity and humanity to make sure that his rocket technology was used for good which uh you know we live in 2022 and the the US has done nothing but good things with rockets right 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 <laughs> uh but i'm i'm just wondering like what was his specialty do you know cuz like well, I believe the big specialty, and this goes back to my past knowledge, so who knows if it's some sort of uh, filtered in uh, xenophobic, you know, retelling of history or something. But my understanding was that he had the mindset for how to stage rockets such that you could really grow them to large size enough to where you could actually put payloads on them 
that could send humans into outer space. Um, there had been lots of early designs of rockets that could fire off in small controlled like um, explosions, but getting things bigger where the the liquid fuel would go through these stages, through solid fuel stages, and not cause the whole thing to just explode, um, that's kind of what everyone in the world was having a problem with. And gotcha. I believe that the V2 is the first um, rocket on the planet that ever left the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and I, I, I believe more... I, I, there's some stat that I was reading before that um, the, those rockets... Um, they, they actually had more of them just like shooting up into space and not being used as weapons than ones where they tried to use them as weapons over the United Kingdom. And they were actually pretty terrible to be used as weapons because you couldn't guide them. You had no idea what's going to happen to it. You could launch it straight up and then you kind of hope that it would drift over there type of thing. Yeah, yeah like the <laughs> asteroid this morning. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Okay. Well, I I find it interesting then that, like, one that 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 genius wouldn't have come about on through somebody else. Like we've we've spoken about that a little bit before. Um, two, uh, I'm certainly not discounting any uh, Nazi sympathies that were in the U.S. government at the time. Oh, right. Um, but three, very interesting that like people in space is also like at a space station is his. Yeah, and that that goes back to when he's like in the forties, thinking about what we could do up there. Um, like you, of course, there's no satellites at the period in time, so he's thinking like, man, we need like a team of men up there to monitor the weather patterns, and we need like <laughs> yeah. a team of men up there to like monitor like can they can see from the sky like when we should rotate our crops way more efficiently than what we're doing now, and he he, he likes foresaw a bunch of the advantages that we would have from like satellites going back down looking on the earth before we even had the concept of like digital technology for those films because all of his early designs and thoughts on that stuff are it's all pure analog and it's it, it's crazy the scale at which he you had to think in order to do those types of have, have those types of imaginative ideas because it's like he wants to put like a hundred people up in space on a revolving yeah. space station in order to keep it working. <laughs> yeah, the the hundred people one was nuts because he's like, you know, it would be staffed by meteorologists and astronomers and soldiers who are looking through a telescope to tell us about enemy advancements. Like, yeah, they're checking on who's 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 testing nuclear weapons. <laughs> I mean, how good of a at that time? How good of a telescopic lens? could have existed i can't imagine but <laughs> yeah um but anyway so the the skylab was i think by the time the skylab was coming around it was not like he didn't design it no right? he came up with the so saturn 5 is his big design project right the saturn 5 rocket that we used to be able to get enough thrust to get enough payload out of the Earth's orbit and get all the way to the moon. Saturn V, biggest rocket ever. Huge rocket. Only made enough of these um, propulsion systems, these Saturn V rockets, 
because there was a plan that they were going to do like 22 Apollo missions, but that got cut at 18. Um, and then there was a plan of using those Saturn V rocket boosters for other missions um, that for a potential space station that they were going to build that never came to fruition. But having the Saturn V, it's sort of like when we talked about the space shuttle, once you have a vehicle, now you have the confines in which all your design elements for any future exploration or mission, now you have those parameters. It has to fit inside of these payload requirements. It has to fit inside of these stages of the rocket. So you know what your limitations are. And um, they knew that if they just wanted to get into low Earth orbit, they didn't need all the stages of a Saturn V rocket. So they could kind of remove one of the middle stages and save that big empty tube space to store some kind of vehicle in that they could use to build a space station out of. So he had come up even before they had landed on the moon or anything. Um, he had come up with ways to reconfigure the Saturn V so that you could have these different sections in it that then you could use to disassemble in space and make a space station out of. Um, and even like ideas where uh, you would take what was one of the liquid fuel uh, canisters for the rocket propellant and then when you got into space, that would detach and you would slide another section of the rocket inside that section that used to hold all the liquid propellant. And that would become like the exterior shield of the future space station because you were kind of recycling a thing that used to just be discarded. So you had like a lot of those ideas. Once you had the Saturn V, you could, you know, come up with these imaginative ways of using it. And eventually the reason Skylab is the shape that it is, is the size that it is, is because they used one of the um, sections of the Saturn V that used to be for propulsion. They took out the propulsion system and they stuffed this big long cylinder inside of there. And that is what became the space station. And so did they already built the Saturn V like pieces? Yeah, and that's all, why they all just those Saturn V it? rockets were ordered so like it's government contract when you know that gotcha. you're going to do the apollo missions and you've done your proof testing of the saturn 5 that it's not going to blow up one out of every three times when you try to launch it then you build them and so they built enough but it was always with the back of their mind knowing that we only have this many of them and once mm -hmm. those are gone they're gone um and so as the scheduled Apollo missions started getting cut because of budgetary constraints. Then you had more and more Saturn V rockets on hand that you were no longer using for that purpose. So then you could repurpose them for these other missions. And that's how they became part of the Skylab um, gotcha. mission. And I think there's still a couple uh, Saturn Vs that are available to be used that haven't been used yet that are still layovers from this period. Oh, really? Uh, I found the the whole concept of it very interesting because they it, so the Skylab was just designed to be like the first long stay space mission, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> I was reading like sections on like the design of it, and <laughs> like the astronauts started getting frustrated with the designers. 
because they were like asking about all the different aspects and then they're like so what color should this section be they're like (laughs) i don't care (laughs) well yeah it's it's all these uh you know the macho right right stuff guys that didn't because these are the guy, the guys that go up in Skylab are the guys that were supposed to go to the moon on like those last four missions that got scrubbed. So they didn't get to go. And like they're still part of that old guard of fighter pilot tough guys uh, in, in the most part. So stuff that we would consider now, like if we were doing like a manned mission to Mars or something, things like lighting and like how the atmosphere and the mood and the color of the thing would matter a whole lot because we understand now how like how those things can affect your mental state and your mental awareness and your calmness. And especially if you're going to be in a high pressure situation with other people. But back then they were like, fuck. I'm used to just sitting inside a little bitty tiny cockpit for hours. What do you mean you're going to give me enough room to float around? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting. I found it um, interesting too that they they redesigned all the food for the Skylab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, everything was apparently just like uh, unpleasant in the form of cubes and squeeze tubes, <laughs> which have you, I'm sure you've like eaten space food, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's like one of uh, the things that you can get at the, if you ever go to, uh, Houston, uh, mm-hmm. you can, they have the gift shop there. You can get the space ice cream and stuff, <laughs> the dehydrated yeah. ice cream and the, uh, I've never had, um, like any of the stuff that they, talk about that they had on apollo which that stuff sounds terrible like they talked i I was reading on on a little side on that about them doing the testing on earth and like the people couldn't even do four days of eating it on earth like the only way that you can you can possibly put yourself in the mode where you're going to eat that crap is if you know you're stuck in a little thing in space with nothing else to eat (laughs) no other options yeah yeah i (laughs) just like you had to have a NASA volunteer say, yeah, I'll eat all this. And then just, I mean, if you're a volunteer for NASA and you're saying you can't eat it, I'm assuming that means like you're almost puking yeah. from eating it. Like, yeah, it, it's got to be horrible. Like the space ice cream, not a big fan. And it's not Dippin' Dots. No, you know? no, no, no. That would be one thing. Um, I like Tang though. <laughs> it's Tang Big is, Tang fan as a kid. Love Tang. Uh, I only had Tang at like a few birthday parties, probably. But I don't know. How do they do Tang? Like, (laughs) because the powder would have floated throughout the the whole area, right? Yeah, yeah. It had to be be some kind of thing where uh, it was like pre-mixed or you... Or you had like the powder in some sort of chamber that you could drop inside of a water pouch and shake it up, maybe. I well, I don't they, know. they they talked about like on um in the first Skylab mission, well, which was Skylab two, the the first Skylab mission, Skylab one, technically is them launching it in the Saturn V rocket. It's unmanned. They just launch it and get it into orbit, and then Skylab two is the first mission where people go up in a smaller orbiter vehicle to dock with Skylab to then populate the station. But they talked about on 
the second mission with people, which was be Skylab three, that they had complained about the food and like the salt content and other things. And so they gave them like salt and pepper packets to season their food with. But then they said that it was useless <laughs> because that just was basically air pollution because whenever they tried. <laughs> I mean, just the things I guess you have to learn. <laughs> you <can't>... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now we're just it's breathing very... in granular salt and pepper for the next 40 days. Of <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like it so gets they, into so they, so they gave them like a liquefied samples of that to add to their food later. Where in, so it was like liquefied pepper and liquefied salt. But their their diets were regulated so much too that it's like like they don't want you having a whole lot of extra. Oh salt yeah, and that's the it's... other thing I was wondering too because like uh, the types of diets that people, especially like um, probably these fighter pilot steak eater type of guys. Back in the 70s, I, I think everything was just caked in massive amounts of salt and butter and just the 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 way that we ate was probably so much worse back then. Just the the cholesterol, added content, added fat, all of that type of stuff. So if they are having something that uh, just has a little bit less sodium, they're probably like, oh my God, this is so bland. I can't even taste it. To where like nowadays we probably would like curdle up like slugs if we ate the amount of salt content that they did back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's where the uh, the rumor originated that like salt is the only spice that white people use. But yeah, it. I mean, that is my favorite... Comment on on the on England is their food was so bland that they had to enslave half the world just to make it taste better. <laughs> Mine more. <laughs> um, oh, look at this! It's an entire country of spices. Who who would have known it existed? Let's claim it all for England. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see. I mean, what what is there to even start with? I think the mission itself um, was very interesting, that it was just trying to figure out uh, how can people live in space, um, doing like life sciences stuff, so figuring out the human physiology, biomedical stuff, circadian rhythms. How, how do you like do welding <laughs> and metal melting, <laughs> crystal growing in space, fluid dynamics? Uh, but then the ones that are space oriented are like, not that those aren't, but those are like, you know, those are the um, fun stuff, the fun stuff that they would talk about on the news. And then later in like the science class with the kids and stuff. Yeah. Uh, the solar observations though, is this like the first major observation of the sun? Yep. So, and that's probably what I would call was like the primary mission that and, observations of the planet that we hadn't really seen before um there were like some certain types of observations made of earth because you had people up there looking at it for so long that you could see slight variation changes in like atmospheric dynamics um they also did some some actual measuring of like crop rotations and stuff like that because they were flying over the same spots like six times a day in orbit so they could see like those 
slight changes over seasonal over the year plus that they were there to see the seasonal changes. But the sun stuff is probably what I would say is like the uh, I don't know the big groundbreaking scientific studies because we didn't really have many ways of monitoring the sun. We didn't have like any satellites going to the sun to look at it. We didn't have any ways of even having like a digital communication of images of the sun from like a floating body out somewhere else from Earth. Um, so those observations were pretty huge. Um, understanding that they're, I think that's some of the first images ever captured of actual coronal mass ejections. Um, sort and of I, those. Yeah, go ahead. Those were like captured because some, like a person was there, right? Like yeah. some of them, because they would just be staring at the sun and then they're like, wait a minute, something's happening. So then they like make sure that they capture it, which is, I mean, I'm assuming now they have the technology that it can do that kind of stuff, but this is the seventies, you know? Yeah. They're on LSD. <laughs> no, the craziest part about that is that the, that camera that they're using to get a lot of the pictures of the sun and some of the pictures of earth, but the main camera that takes like a 150 images of the 150,000 images of the sun. Um, it's a film camera. So all the cameras are film cameras. This is all analog <laughs> up there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one, you got to protect the film from the radiation and heat of space. Cause you don't want it to accidentally start developing or get ruined or you're not going to get to capture any of your images. So you have to create this huge radiation proof box. That's like the heaviest thing on the spacecraft that almost survives re-entry <laughs> to hold the film. But you can't just like keep all the film in there forever because, you know, there's only so many shots on each roll. <laughs> so you have right. to do a spacewalk every time you want to go change the film in the camera. You have to get out of the space, get it in a space shoot, get out of the spacecraft, tether yourself up, crawl out on the outside of the spacecraft all the way to where the camera is, open that big box, Take out the film canister. Don't drop it because that's valuable information. <laughs> Don't let it go and just float away in space. Put the new one in there. Don't lose that one either because expensive again. And uh, and then come back to the spacecraft and then bring that back with you on your reentry vehicle when your crew comes back home. So it's just just changing the film, <laughs> just things that we don't think about now. Yeah. Well, what I'm wondering, what kind of clips did they even have back then? Because like all of that stuff had to be invented. Yeah. You know, so like I'm wondering about the clips that they had and because I just use like carabiners to hold my keys, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of what they're using. They did test out one of the very first um, jetpacks, but they only tested it inside the uh, inside of Skylab. It was a, just a prototype with very light thrusters, but it was the future of what they would use on um, the space shuttle walking missions where you see the guys with those big thruster packs on their back. So even if they get detached from their tether, they can, you know, thrust back to the ship and they're not lost because that was kind of a death sentence. If your tether broke back then, they just watched you float away. There was no salvage mission. There was no way of rescue. There was... Like, just make sure your tether doesn't break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, it reminds me, though, Miho took, a, when she was getting her master's in mechanical engineering, I feel like you would really enjoy this class. It was like, 
they would tell you a problem, like a word problem, and then find a mechanical solution for it. And there's multiple solutions that are possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's a few that would get you an A on the assignment, a few that would get you a B and then so on. And you had to find like the most reliable, simplest version of whatever. And one of them that I remember like trying to think through with her one time um, because I was like, you know, she would tell me about the class and I'm not an engineer. And so I was like, that sounds insanely complex. (laughs) And then she explained the problem and I was like, huh. But it was like a, it was a, um, some sort of gauge. They wanted you to design some sort of gauge where uh, maybe it's like controlling both sides of engines or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it wanted you to create a gauge where both of them could turn from like zero to 100 on their own. But if one of them was um, turned up to like 20, then the other one could not turn at all. Mm. So and, it had a limiter, but they both needed yeah. to work independently, but also work together at, with a limiting cat like aspect to their working togetherness. Yeah. And then after the solution, I mean, this is all the stuff that like they were coming up with, I'm sure, like at NASA during this time. Well, back then in NASA, they would just be like, well, that's easy. We just make one switch for each function. And then we have a big board (laughs) that has like 5000 switches on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, this they were like, you know, it had to have no I think the solution that she turned in was one that like whenever you turned it so much, there was like a spring that would like close a trap on the other one so that it couldn't turn. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, gave gave know, it like up. a little a resistance lock on a gear or something would yeah. spring forward. Um, but because of the spring, that's like a single point of failure in the thing. So mm-hmm. that was like just a B and the actual solution was like two circular knobs with like a semicircles cut out like right at the bottom so that they could fit into each other but it, I mean, but not both at a maximum, right? Yeah. Um, so that was, but that's just like <laughs> it. What's funny is so the, the launch of the Skylab mission had <laughs> a near catastrophe. <laughs> well, and I mean, there is things to think about. It's one of the first times where NASA's like launching something this huge without any people on it and just being like, okay, yeah. we're going to rely on automated systems to deploy this entire space station plus a command module plus all of the solar arrays plus the sun shield plus everything else and <laughs> there's not like a bunch of integrated circuits on this thing <laughs> the the way that they are getting the information read back to them is through uh teleprinters which is just these uh, printers that are connected to a telephone, kind of like an early fax machine that is giving them digital readouts of just raw data information on a piece of paper that is scrolling out of a machine. And they have hundreds of these lined up next to each other in a big mainframe room. <laughs> just, 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 and they have to have guys sitting in front of every single one of these teleprinters, like looking at the raw code coming out and be like, okay, all right, that's online. That one worked. Oh, crap. Shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, God, that would be so stressful and 
I I have like, you know, I've never been diagnosed with dyslexia, but whenever I'm looking at numbers bigger than two digits, like they switch places a lot. (laughs) Like reading a phone number is impossible for me. So I can't imagine doing that job. (laughs) And just the sound of it would drive me mad because they had like, I saw some videos of the guys in those rooms and just the sound of all those teleprinters just... Just going crazy, like oh man! I, I there's have it, that would drive me insane. So much ringing in your ears, but <laughs> <laughs> dinner would be the worst. Um, the so when they launched it though, they they launched that, and then the next day they were going to launch the humans, and they did not launch the humans the next day because the shield that they I didn't look at like images of it. But at first, I thought they had, like, a nose cap that bent over and broke off. But it's, the way it sounded, it sounded like the metal siding of, like, the craft started bending back. Yeah, and I think when that shield broke away, it took other parts of the solar array with it. And then something caused a bunch of the remaining loose pieces to get tangled up with the remaining pieces of the solar array that were there. Yeah, it broke one of the solar arrays and then the other one was jammed and they couldn't get it open. And that shielding that broke away was like the radiation and heat shield Mm -hmm. and micrometeorite shield. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which... which, So then they turned, and this is why like the engineering thing came up to give you a little um, peek into my brain. But they turned to, they had a Mister Fix It, who I'm assuming this is the guy like you've spoken about before, who figured out like you know just the hosing to fit together for all the like you know they got a problem in space and they're down on the ground figuring out okay with all of these instruments from like home yeah. depot what are we going to do yeah it's the it's the thing that they the scene that they show in apollo 13 when uh, they're trying to get the guys home and trying to figure out how to scrub the air for them but that didn't just happen on apollo 13 when something went wrong like that department in nasa was constantly working before and during all of the missions coming up with all of the most insane contingencies that could happen thinking oh you know what happens if like these pieces all of a sudden just melt and how do we replace them with other pieces of junk that we've got up there (laughs) yeah um (laughs) so their solution then i don't know what their solution was to get it unjammed i know they had to do like a spacewalk like first thing um but they sewed together like just a metallic fabric parasol Mm -hmm. to put up as a heat shield. But, you know, as I was describing it, that means there's no micrometeorite shield on like one part. (laughs) No. And the, what you were be hoping as like a good radiation barrier, really not. You have heat. You probably can protect yourself from the heat with like that thin sort of, uh, piece of foil (laughs) that they put out there but uh you're probably not doing much if you have like a big solar storm that's you're not getting much protection from any of that radiation yeah and the like the heat that the thing was heating up to from the sun was going to be enough to melt the plastic insulation 
which is bad. And then that would also release poisonous gas because mm-hmm. I'm assuming this is around the time that nobody really cares about asbestos. Yeah, we yeah we don't know. We we're using just all kinds of industrial grade adhesives to hold this thing together. So we don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know it's not going to be very ventilated in space <laughs> to air right. this place out. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They're not wearing any respirators. Um. So I found that pretty interesting. I don't know. Um, but at the the Skylab 2, I guess I didn't really read too much about them because Skylab 3, they were like the 150% crew or whatever. Yeah. They were like the assholes before <laughs> Skylab well, it's, 4. It's, I, I, this is where I want to talk about it becoming a uh, a bureaucratic budgeting deal because... Everyone's gung-ho at the beginning of Skylab. You're getting daily reports on its condition, even after the initial launch when things are all fucked up. It's like a news story that's going on every night all around the world. Um, Only after the first mission and, you know, now we're not going to the moon anymore and now it's, you know, we're getting to mid-70s and we still got this Vietnam shit going on and we're at nearing like an oil crisis and there's all these other turmoils down on earth going on um the american public is no longer enamored with this uh now 15 year foray into space that they've been doing and when uh you you get a lot of political uh footballing with the space program you know, with the small government people saying, oh, this is a waste of your taxpayer dollars. And then also the more big government progressives saying we could do more with this money here to help people than spending all of this, <laughs> this huge, whatever it was back then, $22 million a day in 1970s prices. I think it's like something like $70 million if you factor it for inflation for us, but um, to keep that station running. And so, like, when when Skylab 3 goes up, the second manned mission, they're doing gangbusters. You know, that's sort of the end of the honeymoon period and the beginning of the, wait a second, every second up there is costing us thousands of dollars. And if these astronauts aren't, if these astronauts are, like, joking around and doing videos of them doing cartwheels up there... That's costing every every flip that astronaut just did was ten thousand dollars in taxpayer money, <laughs> you know. So you get these hearings, and you get all you know. It becomes uh, a a big issue that didn't used to be an issue when you had JFK talking about going to the moon, and we were trying to beat the Russians. This is a whole new world yeah, well, that just happened in less than like six years. Like the whole world turned around on this. <clears throat> how'd that end for him? Yeah. So uh, not well. It well, he got he got the message. He got it through his head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, by the time you get the so the second man crew up there, and they are hailed as like the superstar crew because they did all the cool stuff with Earth, showing all the videos of them doing flips. They did the communication with the school kids on their little projects that they wanted them to do and they finished all of their tasks on time and 
at that point, the idea of Skylab is still, this is going to be still going on like another nine years. You're going to keep sending crews up there. We might even make this thing bigger, add more modules to it, all these, all these options. In between those two, the crew that goes up on Skylab 3 and the crew that goes up on Skylab 4, you have a whole lot of political maneuvering about the budget of NASA. And like even like parts of the budget get cut by 90%. So you have, and there's this whole big transparency initiative. So because it's all publicly funded information, we need to have... We need to be cued in on every single thing that is said up there. We need to know it should be public information. Every single comm that goes back and forth at mission control, that should all be public record, all that stuff. So there's this whole extra transparency initiative that is on top of it now because people are thinking, oh, they're just wasting a bunch of money. We need to really start watchdogging this agency. So it's just a bad mix <laughs> when you send up the crew for for Skylab 4 because one what was going to be a 10 year engagement on this on this space station they've just now figured out okay this is the last mission that's going to happen on Skylab we are banding it after you guys two so now everyone at NASA who had had any kind of science project that had been scheduled over the next decade to do up there is all like well, can we prioritize mine for Skylab 4, please? So I can get the scientific, <laughs> so I can do my experiment, please, please. Can we do my experiment? So they front load all of the experiments that they can all onto Skylab 4 because they know it's the last one. And they still have a ton of maintenance tasks to do because like you talked about, Skylab 1, the launch didn't go great. So they've been kind of holding a bunch of this stuff together with duct tape and prayers up there over the last two manned missions and there's a lot of maintenance stuff that still needs to be done just to make it livable for the guys who are going to be there who are going to abandon the station <laughs> so it's like kind of uh we're doing all these maintenance tasks but no one is going to come up here after us so why are we fixing it up I, I don't know so there's a lot of you know mixed signals and um the the fact that the entire world is aware of the budgetary constraints and knows like to the second the amount of money that is being spent up there really starts to be the headline grabber all around. So if these guys yeah. slack off at all, they're wasting your money type of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of, of uh, posters at CPAC that year. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing that I was reading too was... Uh, because, you know, these, these people are being trained in everything while the other missions are going on. And because there was Skylab 2 and Skylab 3 that so many of, like, the ground control was focused on, the Skylab 4 said that they, like, barely built any rapport with any of the ground team yeah. before going up. So, like, they, I mean, imagine it's like starting a new job and then you know, as they've described in exit interviews or whatever, more recent interviews, they're just like being micromanaged this entire time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it was uh, <clears throat> interesting to really see that this was such a, a cluster of like human, I don't know, it is, it was a study on humanity in space because it is like, <laughs> 
how do we account for all of these people butting heads like and needing to get things done like i know for me being on the ground in a laboratory uh whenever you get yelled at uh you're about ready to you know start dumping all the chemicals yeah, down the let's drain. sabotage <laughs> the experiment then <laughs> yeah it's like all right well you're gonna scream at me this morning maybe i'm not gonna be as uh, careful in my cell collection oops they all died sorry about that <laughs> uh so it is but then what if the american public was like eric that was our money that you were getting paid with a grant in order to do that now you just wasted my tax dollars in fact, yeah, well, I kind of think I kind of think that you should be fired. You know what? <laughs> I would have made more money fired than I did <laughs> there. I think wasting that's what these Department astronauts of found money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing, so you were talking about like their daily instructions too. These would be up to like sixty feet long. Yeah, and it's they have a teleprinter like, up at in Skylab as well. The same teleprinters they have down there, and that's the only way that they get communicated their tasks. <laughs> and these would not be where they're like, you know, putting a few, <laughs> some indentation and a little space in between each task, so that way it's easier to read. Like this is probably like ten point font the whole way across like a telegraph because why would you be wasting the paper up there oh yeah um if you're sending 60 meter long instructions daily for 84 days you know you gotta save space somewhere did you see the how they did the time management on those how nas so no so it wasn't just micromanaging from saying here's all the tasks you have to do the big issue was I, I guess this is also the function of having a bunch of engineers plan out, <laughs> plan out your day. Um, <laughs> the uh, instead of giving any sort of um, freedom of decision making to the people doing the task about what the most efficient way to handle this would be, or like, oh hey, look, there's four tasks that have to be done in this certain airlock. Why don't I combine those so I'm all in that airlock at one time and I'm working on those rather than doing the list where I'm bouncing back and forth all over the Skylab? Just simple things like that. But NASA, because they knew this was the last mission and they knew they had so many things they were trying to accomplish, they didn't have these guys scheduled down to like 15 minute increments. They didn't have them scheduled down to 10, not one minute increments. They had them scheduled down to 30 second increments. Every task was scheduled down to 30 second increments with no time between the tasks to do. There was no like 15 second break to go from one task to the next. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So if you fall behind by like 10 seconds and then that starts to accumulate, you know, throughout the day. And then quickly, you if your list is 60 meters long every day, you quickly find yourself two, three, four days behind on tasks because they're being um, organized and directed to you in this very finite, constructed way of time that has nothing to do with your movement in the ship. It has nothing to do with your ability to communicate with the other guys on the crew and break up those assignments amongst yourselves based on who's better at doing what, 
who got trained to do this specific science experiment versus who got trained to do that one. A lot of the science experiments that got shoved in because it was the last mission, they never even trained on how to do them. So they were like reading the how-to manual to do the science experiment when they were doing it the first time. <laughs> so how great of a result are you going to get on that experiment if the guy doing it wasn't even trained on what he's supposed to be doing and he already knows that he's like two days behind on all the rest of the tasks and he hasn't even been given a day off or more than like five hours to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And this was an all rookie crew that had never been to space, which was, um, you know, like I'm assuming figuring out how to move in zero gravity is complex. Yeah. And <laughs> these, these were all rookies. It was going to be the longest duration of any human being in space they were up there for 84 days um i mean they were they're rookies in the sense that they hadn't gone up but they had been training as part of the apollo missions going back into the early 60s they were supposed to be on the subsequent apollo missions and actually walk on the moon so it's not like they were just pulled off the street they were they had been in nasa for 15 years but they just hadn't gotten there from florida (laughs) yeah they weren't a teacher from florida they uh but um, that that was one of the interesting things on the launch. Um, the the main pilot who had been nicknamed uh, like Steel Stomach <laughs> during his 15 years of of Apollo training because he never got sick once on any of the training flight missions or the G simulator or any of that stuff gets extremely nauseous in the launch. And at that time, they were very concerned about that type of stuff because they didn't really know of good ways to settle your stomach once you were stuck (laughs) in zero G. Like there was not... Space dementia. Yeah. Well, once your stomach gets upset, like it kind of just stays upset. And that was a... It was actually used in Congress as, can we even trust to send people into space? Because now we're learning that they get sick. And do we want to trust someone flying... But this was because they were also trying to get the shuttle program launched at the exact same time as this. So they were one of the arguments against the shuttle program in the early 70s was during Skylab because of the sickness saying, do we want someone flying a huge thing over our cities back in back in from space who's nauseous and he might like crash into a, a city and kill a bunch of people because he's too nauseous to land the thing. Maybe we shouldn't fund NASA at all. That, that was like a. One of the things going on, one of the actual hearings that was going on at the time when these guys were in there. Was this not the time when like pilots had flasks? <laughs> yeah, they were just smoking <laughs> cigars and drinking whiskey in the plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I found it interesting that is like the Pogue astronaut that got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of uh, the one that I find the most interesting <laughs> throughout this whole thing. Um, but they, because he got sick, then the mission control, well, they they decided to not tell them because they were like, well, we got so many tasks to do, right? Yeah, Skylab was new that, and this has happened on other Apollo missions. Like if you saw Apollo 13, you know, when they stopped talking to the medical flight director and they ripped their biometrics off because they were so tired of him telling them to get sleep because they were under a stressful situation. <laughs> um but yeah, so like in Skylab, they had to report if any illnesses and the bio 
uh, data on all the people in the crew um, once the launch was complete. And they just said, oh, Pogue was a little nauseous, but he didn't get sick, even though he was puking all over the place. Uh, <laughs> like they talk about how the cabin smelled like smelled like puke and they were having to take turns sticking their head in the airlock um, in order to get some fresh air that didn't smell like vomit. Because that was because when you dock the the protocol was when you dock with Skylab the first 24 hours you stay in the command module before you go into the big open drum because they thought if you stayed in a small confined place it would be easier on your stomach and your orientation than if you just suddenly were dropped in a big zero g floating they were trying to like acclimate you to zero g but that was mm -hmm. one of the things they discovered ah that doesn't really help or doesn't really help anything um but yeah so they uh, the, the captain of the crew did not report to NASA's flight surgeon that there was puking on board. And they got a call the next day, not from just mission control, but from Alan Shepard himself, the first American in space who was the director of NASA. And this was a very public reprimanding of the crew because they have live microphones that are feeding into the teleprinter in NASA every single thing verbatim that the astronauts are saying, even if they think that they're not communicating openly through a Vox to NASA. And um, I guess the crew had forgotten that that was now a new transparent feature on the craft. And so all the world heard, hey, uh, let's just not tell them you got sick. I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cause a fuss. <laughs> yeah. So with this new transparency initiative, uh, everyone knew that. Every, everyone knew that you had decided not to tell him that he got sick. So then Alan Shepard had to publicly reprimand them where the whole world heard them get yelled at by NASA for not telling him they got sick and basically saying, hey, these are the taxpayers' dollars up there. You better you better be better stewards with their money type of, type of reprimand. And that's when they knew... They were like, okay, remember, there's a lot more going on here than just us completing these experiments. And that's when they knew they, they were involved in a much more potential tenuous situation between like a future kind of labor and management type of dispute that the entire world was watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I found, you know, that is like super important to what later went on because they obviously had some serious like issues one they had their workload was insane which we've spoken about um two they like whenever they were trying to start doing their experiments like tools and stuff were misplaced from the previous crews like not put where they needed them so they needed to and from reading i didn't know if that was just their the previous crew's malpractice or i think the previous crew was pranksters because they that left like is... dummies in there to scare them when they came inside. Like, oh my God, there's someone still inside the space station. <laughs> and they, right. and I think a bunch of the moving of the tools around was like, ah, pranks, got you guys. Which <laughs> probably wasn't fun when your daily tasks are scheduled to the 30 second increment. <laughs> no. But the thing with like the, the astronauts there or the dummies that were there, um, they like they had to leave the doors unlocked for the crews to like go in. So, and this is 
during the 70s so it is a tense time still yeah so they didn't know like they peeked their head in and they don't know like did the russians the russians get in here? took like, our station <laughs> yeah uh which was great but then what was also funny is they were like we didn't take those dummies down for ever because we were too busy (laughs) they had to just float these dummies out of the way and like keep moving around them because there's like too much stuff to do um and uh so yeah so then the stuff was misplaced Uh, but then (laughs) just seven days into the mission one of the three gyroscopes failed Mm -hmm. to like orient the entire craft and they had to figure out what the problem was with that but then noticed uh, a second of the third ones was about to fail. Right. The reason you had three is because two are operational and one's a backup. So you had one fail and you had the backup kick on. But now if the next one's going to fail, you don't have a backup for that one. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> You're just about to start spinning. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they had to, like, figure all that out. And I think they, like, lowered the temperature and adjusted something but yeah they needed to add lubrication or just enough lubrication so that it would last for the rest of their mission since they knew it was going to be the last one anyone was going to be there yeah so they began complaining to the ground controllers that they were being worked too hard because they were finding date falling days behind on task right and they were um, supposed to have negotiating their contract i think one day off every seven days or one day off every 10 days and like the first what was it, 37 days or something like that? They had zero days off because they were so and, far behind. Yeah, they could only sleep for like six hours, but they, they were like skipping sleep because they had to, to do stuff. To try to make up, yeah. And one fact that I didn't know, um, the shower that they built there, it took two and a half hours to shower in this thing. It's another proof of concept thing. You just had to try it before you figured out showers in space are a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> But it took two and a half hours. The amount of water used was six pints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's because you can't let these little microscopic droplets of water escape the shower and then get into the rest of the system because you're going to cause a bunch of shorts, a bunch of analog wiring systems holding this thing together. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you have to pull this big tube around you that has all this vacuum equipment that sucks all the water out. Yeah, I can't. That that's when they figured out. Okay, it's we're just gonna go with the moist towelette option of wiping ourselves down. <laughs> that's that's the way to bathe in space. We figured this one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I found like the the toilet very interesting, um, but that nobody seemed to have problems with. They're like, this works like a charm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's uh there's other moist towelettes and gloves <laughs> required. Uh, but hey, that's space. And that was the other thing is like they weren't recycling any of that wastewater and they weren't venting it like it was being stored on the ship. So all the feces and urine reentered the atmosphere with the with the Skylab when it plummeted back to Earth in July 1974. Right. Yeah. That's what I was kind of surprised. I was like, why don't you just push it out the window like towards Earth or something? But maybe they were scared of. uh I mean, they they were already very concerned about just the movements of the astronauts inside of Skylab messing up the attitude and orientation of the ship and mm. make causing them to have make thruster adjustments. So I wonder if they were just so concerned of uh, venting anything would cause maybe a 
out of control spin or something like that that oh, they just yeah. didn't risk it. Okay, I've, I've seen the expanse. Um, one question I have for you though, because I've I've been very confused by this. I try to work it out in my head, and then I have it, and then I don't have it. And this doesn't have to do with Space Lab. This is a side note. But the spinning, like if you just have an open cylinder mm-hmm. and you spin it, right, and it's artificial gravity, if you were just floating in the middle when it started spinning, how do you, do you get pulled towards a wall? No. No then how does the artificial gravity, like how do you, could you jump if you're running on like the spinning thing, could you just jump from one side to the other? Yeah, there's videos of so them how does, they're, they're not spun up to create artificial gravity. But no, not well not the Skylab, but like the, the ones that are spun to create artificial okay, so gravity. Okay, so like Von Braun's original idea for the space station was like a cylinder, uh, not, not, like a, not like a cylinder like, like Skylab is, but like an, an, a ring, like a, like a steering okay. wheel. So like you would have a hub and spoke system. So the th- whole thing would spin. Everyone would be living on the perimeter gotcha. of the ring, like, uh, like on the outside of the steering wheel being shoved into the edges of the steering wheel. And then you would have these spokes that would cut through from one side to the other that then you could, Tra- if instead of going all the way around the ring to travel from one side to the next, you would cut through the middle and then you you would jump or climb a ladder and you would get less and less gravity as you go towards the center. Now, when you're in the center of when you're in the hub, then you would have zero gravity. And then as you go down the next spoke towards the perimeter, gravity would increase and you would go that way. So how did the uh, Navu do that? In the expanse, because it was a cylinder that they were going to spin up. Again, that's the that's the size aspect. So, like, you wouldn't be able to create the artificial gravity in the cylinder like Skylab because it's only, you know, like twenty feet in diameter. Uh-huh. So, but in the Navu is big enough where you have like entire rotations and acreages of crops and stuff on the inside surface of that cylinder. So every when that thing spins. No one is going to be able to jump hard enough off of the inside face of the cylinder to put themselves in the middle where the gravity is is zero. Gotcha. But they had birds and stuff in there that could fly around, but were basically flying around in zero gravity. And that's why you had the, like, even in Ceres Station, when they spun up Ceres, is the same thing. And that's why you had the birds, like, flying around, but then they could just, like, stay stationary, like, in midair. Because they were more towards away from the surface, and oh, then they were okay. less gravity. Sort of, it's just the centrifugal force showing. idea of the force being pushed out to the edges of the spinning record player. Gotcha. Th- this is expanse talk uh, for everyone who's not familiar. <laughs> but okay, that makes sense. Back to the podcast. Um, <laughs> I was I've just always had trouble like under but okay I get it. Uh I was like, you know, once you're stuck on the wall then yeah, you're stuck on the wall, but how do you get stuck on the wall? Cuz I was like, do the air molecules pull you? I don't know. Um so anyways, the it well, the, it does do weird stuff to air and liquid and they they showed this in the expanse too, like it's one of the first episodes where um 
He's like pouring whiskey. Yeah, right? he's pouring the whiskey or the coffee, and it does that spiral, that weird spiral in the air before it goes down into the cup, and that has to do mm-hmm. with the centrifugal force of the thing rotating. Uh, yeah, that's got to be so weird. I find the the three point like they do it in the you know there's video of it from the ISS where they've got like the three point thing and they like spin it and it it like spins like this and then flips rotation oh yeah 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 yeah, the other way yeah that zero gravity is weird (laughs) (laughs) uh so here comes the big thing that you wanted to discuss so i would love for you to explain to me because i only read you know some of the parts and there's the official line of it and then one of the astronauts is like that's not even true and then one of the other astronauts that died a few years ago is like Yes, that was very true, and he also <laughs> retired from NASA the year he returned. Yeah, I, I guess it's the best way is to work backwards. So the the Skylab crew four gets back to Earth. They complete all of their tasks way ahead of schedule, actually, and we'll tell we'll talk about why later. But they get back to Earth and they never go to space again. They're grounded forever. <laughs> Basically, they are a black mark on NASA, and they get the uh, the the full burial in in space history um, treatment. And um, so, I would say the fact that NASA went so hard after them after they got back on the ground, even though they had an incredibly successful mission, means that whatever the government line that even if you still go to nasa.gov today and they have like a story about what really happened on skylab 4 and you're like this sounds this does not sound at all like what probably happened (laughs) it still sounds like a weird cover-up story where you're saying that we were all best friends and everyone got along great and it was just a just a simple miscommunication we all got it ironed out and everyone was happy what's what's the big deal guys (laughs) (laughs) it were like reading through this reminded me of the I don't know if you listened to it, but um, Matt Brunig had his either his dad or his grandpa on. I think it was his dad mm-hmm. uh, to talk about like union stuff. And because the way that they describe it, they're all like, like, or at least two of the astronauts describe it. Uh, they're like, no, that didn't happen. It's a misunderstanding. It's a rumor. Of course, we wouldn't do that. It was just, you know, we were being overworked and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of like how Matt Brunig's dad was like, yeah, you know, sometimes those trucks would just have a problem and get stuck in the middle of the road. Nothing we could do about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's very much that. And I, I think there is, there's still like the holdover of sort of that, the generational holdover of I was a company man. I was a government man. Yeah, things went bad. I I took the short end of the stick and got blamed for it. But there's some like integrity and honor and... I'm not going to be like the whistleblower on this whole thing, but I'm also going to commie, but I'm also going to like give you that, uh, that sort of like cheeky grin tongue firmly planted inside my cheek when I tell you how it happened. And then you can kind of read between the lines based upon what we're saying here, you know, type of type of read to it that I get. Yeah. So they, they had like, it was a little confusing also because like everything they're saying is being recorded, I thought, yeah, and sent back down. So that's kind of where 
It's like, you know, well, they just released the recordings then. Well, there's um, a reason because the recordings of the main of the main event don't exist for a very specific reason. <laughs> they they had like planned uh, communication times, like daily briefings. Right. And this is and because of the Cold War. There's certain spots. One, don't have a lot of satellites. Um, so two, you're relying on a bunch of ground-based antennas to relay communications around the world. So there's certain spots on the planet as Skylab orbits where it's out of range of these relays to get back to America, specifically because you don't have relay towers like in Russia and China at this point in time that can help you send signals around the globe all the way back. So you have some dark spots where you go radio silent with with Skylab and you don't get the information back. And because they had this daily briefing, it was, I guess, required. I don't know how they came to the decision, but... All three of them were supposed to be there, but being mm-hmm. so overworked and behind schedule, they decided only one of them would be there for it so the other two could continue on doing tasks. Um, I don't know if that was like an officially decided thing. It they sounded had like decided they just to decided to do that it. in order to help make up for the time that they had lost, even though protocol required that all three of them be present for every briefing. So they were try they were doing a rotation where one person would get to do it while the other people were trying to catch up on tasks. But the other, a thing that had happened before this, where they had started this sort of rotation without NASA knowing, was they the initial, I guess, outward sign of protest was after they had been working without a break for like 20 days, they just stopped shaving because they didn't even have time to shave anymore and shaving was a huge protocol requirement for nasa and for the military at that point like being a clean cut flyboy was the image of nasa and like just imagine the oh my god these fucking hippies in space (laughs) (laughs) when all of a sudden they're growing beards up there like that's not american like that it's it's not even uh like to to us now like everybody grows a beard but but like back then that was almost unpatriotic like the the way that it was taken by the american public the way that it was reported on was like wow wow what was this what are these like rebels to to the american cause what is going on here so they started yeah, yeah. growing beards which that doesn't sound like a huge thing but I, I think back then it is a very big statement, especially for a bunch of astronauts who hadn't like grown stubble in 20 years because they've been so meticulous. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's one of those things, too, where you can play it off. It's like, well, shaving means that I have to suck up all these hairs like, yeah. every every time I shave. And I don't know, were they shaving every day? Oh, or was yeah. it whenever they showered? So yeah, so it's you know they were only permitted a... one shower per week, right? <clears throat> and uh, but yeah, so but shaving every like the the dress code is the dress code. Yeah, so I mean that's that is pretty interesting that I didn't find in some of the or the stuff that I had looked up. So they started having you know uh, had very bad rapport with the ground. And uh, during 
one of the flyovers where they would have had uh, contact, their radios were not turned on or were turned off. Um, so does that mean like the the thing that was recording their voices the whole time was also turned off? I believe that that device was specifically in the command module, oh, not okay. inside the main Skylab. Gotcha. Um, and so th- in order for them to communicate for that daily briefing, they would go, you know, Vox on, comms on, and... So they were supposed to all be listening in, but only one guy was listening in and taking notes for the other two. And they say that they got messed up on their rotations because they had gone ahead and taken a day off for themselves just because they hadn't been awarded it. And they were like, they were actually having mistakes. Like uh, a big mistake had happened earlier where um, I believe it was Pogue who was trying, you're supposed to take the, print out from the teleprinter and then have it with you when you go to the experiment station where you're doing the thing that you're doing. So you're reading right off the teleprinter what you're doing. But the tasks were so long that he started just jotting down in shorthand on his notepad in a pencil, like what the tasks were, just copying them off so he didn't have to take the whole page with him because he couldn't hold the whole thing and then do whatever he was supposed to be doing. And he made a bad mistake where he'd either copied numbers off wrong or he couldn't read his own handwriting. And it had to do with some attitude pitch adjustments to the spacecraft and it caused it to get out of alignment and they kind of started tumbling and losing control and they had to quickly work together holding the holding the 60 meter long <laughs> teleprinter page and a joy and the joystick and the other, you know, panicked trying to get the thing back. Right. And that's when they were like, look, we're so fatigued. We're making mistakes. I don't care what they say. We're taking a day off. And when they took that day off, the next briefing was at the completion of that off day they took. And that's when they didn't show up for the NASA briefing when they came out of um, blackout. So that's where it's uh, either you buy that they were just so fatigued that they forgot to turn their comms on and they had such a good time where they took their own day off that that probably gave them some sort of fog of war and they forgot who was on the rotation for the briefing or they were still in protest from the day off that they took themselves because they were worried they were going to kill each other by making a mistake that they left their comms off to prove a point to NASA that you can't really tell us what to do up here. Like what we're, we're the only ones up here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, it's, it was kind of, uh, kind of, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good lesson to like understand that, they were working together. They are in this really tight environment. So, you know, it was, it was, a uh, not to bastardize a phrase too much, but it's almost like the, you know, who protects us, we protect us kind of thing. Yeah. Cause they, there's nothing that the ground control can do at that point to like, you know, help them rotate the thing that much. Cause there is some delay. They're not, you know, there's blackout zones and all that kind of stuff. So it is interesting that they, these, uh, you know, very (laughs) squared away military guys are probably, uh, 
leaning a little bit more towards the center on the political spectrum of the 1970s. Yeah. And it's it, they don't say strike. The ground control doesn't say strike. They don't say it was any kind of labor dispute or anything like that at all. But because the uh, mission control logs of the communication are in public record and there's a big transparency movement, everyone knows what happened. And it immediately shows up in every newspaper around the world that the astronauts are striking. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> that, that becomes the narrative, whether the astronauts were intentionally doing it or not, or the astronauts wanted to go back and like say, oh, let's ease up on the strong language of strikes because we don't want to be associated with some leftist progressive labor movement. Either way, it had the effect. It had the same effect on their relationship with management. <laughs> yeah. And, but what's interesting, though, I saw like it that there was also something saying it didn't show up in newspapers until like 76. So what was the communication? Because like that was like a New Yorker article, but he doesn't. The guy that wrote that one, like, I don't know. It seemed weird. Like it, it was probably... I don't know. It's one of those things looking back that you can't ask NASA because they're like, that didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't even happen. They just had a little comms blackout issue. It was all, it was all fine. We we're all fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. Um, and I found it interesting, too, that like Pogue stated that they wanted to take time off because they they like wanted to act like humans, not just operate like machines the whole time. Mm -hmm. And they they did enjoy looking out of the windows and you know, that that led to things like capturing the solar flares that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. Um, but it is an interesting view on space. It's like you can't just like it is humans. Maybe that's why people prefer the drones in space much more because it's oh, like yeah. you can just program the whole thing. Yeah, I don't you don't got to give Curiosity rover a day off on <laughs> on Mars. You just yeah. keep sending him commands and he just keeps doing it until, you know, either his his uh solar panels get covered with dust and you got to wait for the wind to blow him off or he runs out of fuel cell, like he's just going to keep chugging. <laughs> yeah. Um it is interesting too that the like the two astronauts that say it wasn't really a big deal are like, you know, it's not fair that this is thrown on us. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but was they they ended up completing all of their tasks and everything because of this, right? Like they they had a come to Jesus meeting on the yeah. December thirtieth. <laughs> yeah, N NASA basically is scared that this is some sort of labor revolt. And there is a quick understanding of, oh, wow, it's at such a precipice where if we try to push them the way we have been, nothing's going to get completed. And that would be a huge scientific waste because we're not sending another crew up here. This is it. This is the last, <laughs> this is our last chance. And just like yeah. you had all these people with incredibly vested interests trying to get their experiments pushed to this thing so they can get their stuff done because the timetable got shortened. Now they also understand you can't just put pressure on it to get it done or you'll get nothing it's very important for them to still get results. So they have to change, they have to completely reevaluate their calculus and say, okay, we got to approach this as a 
human problem and work with these people. And that's when they say, we are not going to follow any of your time management um, suggestions. If anything, we just need you to give us a list of what needs to get done and then let us work out how we're going to get it done best amongst the three of us. And then we'll let you know when those things get completed. And that is how the rest of the mission goes. And they actually do more tasks than the previous um, manned mission and are more efficient at getting all those tasks completed once they're able to manage their own time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure like NASA was freaking out too because (laughs) can you imagine what the budget cuts would have been if they did just say like, nope, no more. We're (laughs) we're staying up here for 30 more days and then we're just coming back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That would not have played well in, in... the political spectrum too, when you're already undergoing these hearings about your bloated budget and, and taxpayer waste. Who was president then? Was that, uh, Nixon? Mm-hmm. So or no, or LBJ, LBJ 70. Okay. I don't remember. No yeah, one LBJ remembers did the get 70s. elected, right? Yeah. So yeah, that had to be LBJ. Um, a Texan like yourself. Mm-hmm. Like you, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so I I say I say that it was a strike because the effect was the same of completely renegotiating the labor conditions and it uh actually changed the human relations uh protocols for all future space missions going into the shuttle program and now going into Mir and then ISS like there's now Everyone has to have these designated rest times during the day, designated sleep times. You have to do your own private time, whether it's you're going to read or leisurely look out the window. Like you have to do it if you're going to be in space Um, because they've now been like, wow, the uh, mental health and uh, the general attitude and cheerfulness of the people up in space is much more important than our task mastering so because that's the other thing that you find out when you uh start to put a bunch of stress and pressure on people then they quickly get at odds with each other and the last thing you want is for people to start fighting each other in a confined space (laughs) yeah yeah would be interesting to see how that works though oh man violent yeah red enders game space dementia gonna have to duct tape you up (laughs) um i don't want to keep you too long but the uh, it being a mission where they observe the sun so much, but then we're not able to see, oh, the sun's acting a fool and it's going to cause this thing to crash into Earth way sooner than we thought it is kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah. If, if only we had been studying the sun longer, we could, <laughs> we could have had a better understanding of these uh, 11 year cycles of <laughs> massive solar ejections and radiation storms. Yeah, the, I mean, I found that super uh, interesting because I'd never even considered it for for near Earth or orbit or low Earth orbit or whatever. That um, yeah, the sun will heat up the atmosphere, which means it expands. Yeah, <laughs> and then starts causing drag. Yep, it's it slows down, and there is we talked about before how like just actual photons can cause drag or you can use them like wind to power a sail and push you through space. But much more drag is when like actual, uh, 
particles of hydrogen and helium and <laughs> everything from the atmosphere are actually coming now into contact with your ship like uh, water on the bow of a boat and, and slowing you down so that you can no longer stay in orbit and you start to fall to the earth. Yeah, the it falling back to earth too, it did not make me feel great about the, the odds because <laughs> they, they like calculated the odds of uh, what you know, how much debris was going to land and all this kind of stuff. And they, you know, as you mentioned, the the heavy part, they were like, that whole thing could land intact at 400 like feet per second or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, But I, I love that there were like, there was a town that painted a big bullseye over the center <laughs> of town. Uh, people were selling sat, uh, what was it? Skylab repellent, um, money back guarantee. And uh, it was not all like a joke because NASA calculated the odds were one in 152 of debris hitting a human. Yeah. And one in seven of it hitting a city of 100,000 people or more. That's pretty low. (laughs) I mean, it's only like it's only like 70 tons. It's not that much. (laughs) (laughs) It is almost rolling one die. (laughs) Uh, yeah, that was, that was super interesting and it was very, very funny. So like they, you know, were planning on it staying up there longer and they're like, the shuttle will be ready to give it a boost. Cause they, the were, they were, they had, the plan delayed. was the shuttle was going to be ready by 1979. Right. Yeah. It was, uh, it was not. No. Was ready. Not. And so the thing started, uh going you know coming down so they charged the batteries enough to like try and pitch it and they aimed for it to land what like 800 miles off the coast of south africa well yeah they were trying really hard to get it to land in the ocean either in the pacific or the indian ocean right yeah yeah because it's going uh like when it transits australia it's going from east to west around the planet so kind of like southeast to northwest as it's wrote as it's doing its spin so if you think of australia you're going from uh the east coast across perth and then back up around america and then you're just doing that sort of angular um spin around the planet um so yeah they wanted to land in the oceans they had no real idea of how to make it land in the ocean (laughs) they had some guesses about at what altitude, based upon the materials of Skylab, at what altitude would the um, friction with the atmosphere cause it to start to break up? And if it breaks up, then that's going to slow it down and you're going to have a bunch of little pieces that are going to get spread over a debris field. And that debris field could stretch around like a quarter of the circumference of the planet, depending on how soon it broke up in the atmosphere. Um, So they had, you know, some guesstimates about how it was going to work and but sort of the idea was until it was a couple days from entering the atmosphere would they know kind of when it would enter the atmosphere and until it was like a couple hours would they kind of know where it would hit and the reason this is kind of relevant to me is because uh you know last week uh we've had the big ukraine deal going on and uh, one of the big threats from Russia was 
Russia, uh, the Russian space agency controls all the orbital thrust adjustments for the International Space Station. They do that from the ground, from their mission control. So every once in a while, the International Space Station does encounter drag, just like we're talking about Skylab, and it wants to deorbit. It wants to slow down and slowly fall back to Earth. That's just the nature of orbital geometry. Um, and so you have to make small thrust adjustments. Well, they have a Soyuz um, spacecraft up there that's docked with the International Space Station, and they use the thrusters on that in order to keep it in orbit. Well, because of all the sanctions that was done by the world against Russia, the Russian space agency threatened that they would no longer make thrust adjustments to the International Space Station and that they could cause it to fall out of orbit and then and then also target where it would fall so that it would land on a major American city. And um, this, the Skylab is a great example of that's pretty hollow threat because <laughs> you can't just like tell the International Space Station to just fall out of orbit. It's going to, it would take it a long period of time of not having these thrust adjustments to slowly deorbit. And even then, or could you, could you rotate it and then give it the thrust or something? You could, like, would there be a way to push it into the earth? You could slow it down. Um, but I don't think that they have the power to just spin it or completely cause it to tumble. And even then it's going whatever over 14,000 miles an hour or something. So you'd have to have quite a bit of differential thrust from it somewhere else to cause it to completely fall into the earth just from like a stationary point falling out of the sky. It's still going to follow this orbital path. Um, mm -hmm. And it's huge. It's way bigger than Skylab and how it would break up in the atmosphere and how the drag would affect as like the solar panels got ripped off and as certain sections of it started to cause it to tumble and break up. Who knows how that would slow it down, meaning as it slows down on this arcing path, it's either going to slow it down so it falls in the ocean before it hits land or it's going to slow it down so it hits land before it falls in the ocean. But you don't know at what point it's doing the slowdown maneuver. And like they learned in Skylab, Skylab broke up way closer to the surface of the Earth than they thought it would. They thought it was going to break up way higher in the atmosphere than it did. Um, so it came in pretty hot through all the first layers of the atmosphere, and only when it got pretty close did it start to break up. So they were concerned that it was going to land on a major on land. And like the because of that, they were trying to really make sure that it landed in the ocean. And in doing this, the the maneuver that they did was to cause it to tumble to try to slow it down more as it entered the atmosphere to try to really make it so that it would drop into the an, into an ocean bucket. And sort of the math on this made it such that <laughs> you're trying to slow it down so it doesn't hit Australia and it lands in the ocean before it hits Australia. Well, because it broke up way lower in the atmosphere than they thought, it came in a lot faster than they thought, even with the slowing down maneuver. And... <laughs> 
it lands on the other side of Australia, about 300 miles off the west coast of Australia. So the slowing down maneuver almost made it slow down just enough so that it would have crashed into a major (laughs) population center on the west coast of Australia. And a lot of the debris field gets stretched all across the Australian continent. And even there's like a $10,000 prize that uh, some, I think it's a radio station and California gives to somebody who can bring the first (laughs) piece of debris from Australia and prove that it's really it. This was a, there was a newspaper in San Francisco offering a $200,000 prize. There you go. Which is, (laughs) newspapers needed to die. (laughs) (laughs) They're just sitting on all that money in the 70s. Yeah. (laughs) They own the Um, world. (laughs) There was like some guy, and it's, it landed in like a rural area at least. And there was a guy that found like a debris piece and some like business dude in America flew him out to San Francisco, I'm assuming to like partially split the money. But then the business guy also gave him like a thousand dollars. I don't know <laughs> how the money gets split up, but yeah. See, I remember like, when the when the space shuttle uh, broke up in uh, 2003 and uh, over Texas, and it was like all stretched out from like Tyler out towards uh, Nacogdoches all the way to the edge of Louisiana, all the debris field. And NASA wasn't offering you any money. They were saying, don't touch it. (laughs) Don't touch any of that stuff. Um, It's We use a lot of things to protect from radiation and heat, and those probably aren't good to be touched by human skin, especially after it's just come through the atmosphere. We don't know what... Because, you know, they had like... uh, nuclear-powered uh, devices and controls on the space shuttle and things like that, so they don't know what got contaminated when it all broke up in the atmosphere. So like, please don't touch anything. <laughs> Call the authorities if you see it. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that was that was also why, like, so many people were freaking out about the Skylab because the USSR had, uh, in January of 78, a radioactive, like, powered thing uh, fall in northern Canada. <laughs> so it, it they had, even though they didn't have any like nuclear powered stuff on the Skylab, it was still, everyone's like, oh wait, this can be not great. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you remember when the, then when the, the space shuttle broke up on reentry? Yes. Uh, I was at my dad's house um, and his girlfriend's kids were over and we all thought, uh, should we go to the, the first floor? Nope, because that's not going to stop any of this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a wooden house. <laughs> now, I went outside and yeah, I, I was at Nikki's mom's house. Her and her mom had just flown to New York to uh, go buy wedding dresses for our wedding. And they were in the New air. New York wedding dress, huh? Huh? Yeah. A New York wedding dress? Oh, wow. <clears throat> no, they had like, in New York, they have like this uh, big, uh, I guess it's like warehouse discount clearance bride place where you, they like oh, okay. open the doors at like 6 a.m. and everyone has to run in and you just grab whatever dress you can type of thing. But they're all like runway designer dresses for, you know, like 95% off type of thing. Gotcha. Um. But it re-entered while they were in the air. I but I remember going outside in the backyard and watching the, you could see the like the six 
pieces like trailing through the sky going towards the east. It's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely didn't want to go outside because I was like, I'm I'm surely going to be hit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, that has been your luck, you know. You always get the exploding soda can. You probably would have gotten hit on the head <laughs> with a piece of heat shield. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not soda, my friend. Uh, yeah, so uh, that, this was a very interesting one. Uh, give me more stories like this. Well, I, I guess I guess the uh, the failure in labor labor relations on this deal was one. It proves the effectiveness effectiveness of a strike or even the threat of a strike, and causing management to realize, oh wait, I'm not going to fly up to space and do these experiments. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got these guys to do it. Um, but then also, if you don't have a union, uh, even if you can negotiate some sort of compassionate working conditions because of the immediate need and how management will capitulate to that situation. If you don't have a strong union to back you up once that project is done, uh, they'll just cut you and get rid of you and pretend you never existed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So strikes are great. Unions are important. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Knowing that there's the uh, the at will employment, which is such a dubious fa- phrase. <laughs> <laughs> that that's why they were based in Texas, because it's a it's a it's a right to work state. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, wasn't it nearly blue back then? Yeah, you know what? What I don't know what blue meant back then. Those blue dog that's Democrats, such a good that point. just loved the Confederacy. <laughs> That is a great point. Yeah, it's just people who hadn't gotten the memo that the party switched platforms. Yeah, it's it's the people that, you know, they're cool with cheating on their wives because they weren't that religious yet. But we still got to hate the black people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But thankfully, things have changed. Yeah, yeah. It's all come full circle. Full 180. (laughs) <laughs> yes <clears throat> all right man well that's all i've got on skylab uh maybe maybe we'll talk about mir next time and how it crashed into earth <laughs> <laughs> sounds good <laughs> all right well um uh i don't know that was the other thing we didn't talk about i don't know how those russian cosmonauts are doing up on the international space station right now i don't know if uh the other six people from the from the partner nations have them duct taped up in an airlock somewhere to make sure that they don't <laughs> sabotage the space station <laughs> um and uh the the only escape pod on the international space station is a soyuz return entry vehicle um and it can only hold three people uh there's uh, eight people up there right now and two of them are russian so i'm guessing those two could just hop in their russian escape pod and jettison themselves at some point I, so i wonder if uh like you've got crews up there like watching those guys making sure they don't accidentally sneak into the <laughs> the pod and <laughs> abandon the rest of the people up there with no way of getting out but who knows <laughs> we'll see what happens at least we don't have to just rely on russia to be able to send a craft up there to dock with the international space station if anything goes wrong because now we're using uh now we're using the spacex rocks rockets yeah, I I was wondering too. Um, one, I I I can't imagine you work that hard to get up to that level, especially now, and you have that much loyalty to the country that you're gonna like tank this 
you know, international working thing. Yeah. Um, but then it, that made me think like, well, what, you know, if these people were being overworked, hey, I lived in a society that was overworked. What do, what does JAXA have to say about its astronauts? And um, apparently like Japanese astronauts only fairly recently became like commanders uh, on the ISS because they were like, this is one person's interpretation who's like in charge of like some kind of director level at JAXA, which is the Japanese space agency. And he was describing that Japanese astronauts are great at a uh, teamwork and everything, but they, they were not like leading. They were not leaders of the team. They were not like they would contribute to whatever other people wanted to do, but not have things that they wanted to bring people along to do. Okay. Um, so it was kind of interesting that they, they've they shifted focus into being like more of a leader kind of mindset, um, but they find the fundamental behavior of things like cooperation, teamwork, and self-control uh, to be like the most important. And they, I don't think, at least in the time that I was reading this interview, uh, they had not really completed either a serious spacewalk or any spacewalks. And the person was saying like, well, space spacewalks are very taxing on the body. So you need like a bigger person to do it. So we, and all of our Japanese astronauts have been much smaller people in comparison. So <laughs> we didn't want them doing it or they weren't chosen to do it or whatever. Well, but, I think there is a very specific physiology and that was learned about in Skylab. Like, just things that you would have thought wouldn't have been any kind of issue, like uh, yeah. putting on your socks in zero G, that will can cause you to like strain your abdominal muscles, can cause uh, hernias, <laughs> can cause like lots of things like that. Because when you bend over on in gravity, gravity does a lot of the work, <laughs> and your yeah yeah and your muscles are relying on that resistance. For you to be able to like, oh, I'm just doing a little bit resistance against this controlled falling towards the earth to bend over. When you don't have that force pulling you to the ground and you don't just have to be like, have your muscles just have this little, oh, just, I'm just holding you back just a little bit, just a little bit so you don't fall over. They have to do a lot more work. Now they have to actually like contract to pull your abdominal face down to the ground to reach your feet. And you don't ever do that like those muscles will freak out and you will get like hernias and cause bad things to happen so that a lot of little things like that were learned in Skylab about wow we really rely on gravity a lot just for like motor capabilities yeah yeah that was that was super interesting um like all of the straps that they were like oh you're gonna need this like for the toilet and stuff they've got thigh straps and then by the end they're like no yeah (laughs) i just need a handle yeah 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 (laughs) so it's it's interesting stuff so good on them for figuring that out um and rest in peace pogue yeah died in 2014 there's only one ed's the only one that's alive still i think oh really see the, the one that gave the bbc interview last year that sort of started this whole thing was there really a strike i forget yeah just a rumor that won't die (laughs) i believe he said all right man well until next week maybe the world will be a chiller place (laughs) surely (laughs) bye